Amen. Well, I hope you felt like your heart is kind of being tuned to that and reminded that God really is worthy of our worship. Amen. And now we get the awesome privilege of hearing from him. And so why don't you find your seats and uh, we're going to take our Bibles. And if you take your Bibles, open with me to the book of Mark. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 uh, this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have a copy, so our ushers are coming around. We want you to be able to uh, study God's Word with us, and we are in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 14. I'll let you know that next week we're uh, going to take a, a three-week break from the book of Mark, which we'll pick up with uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, and, and the reason we're going to do that is because next, next week we'll really um, start our anticipation of, of Christmas. And, and I know that today is the start of Advent. This is the season where we really start to remember and, and get that sense of anticipation and excitement for the first coming of Christ. And uh, next week we will really get after that in earnest. But uh, we will also, next Sunday, uh, be taking communion together. And so, uh, this week, I think, as you're going to see in Mark chapter 14, um, as we see in the text, you're really going to uh, prepare our hearts for uh, communion next week and, uh, I think, remind ourselves why Christmas is so significant. we got to get this. we got to make sure that we're uh, connecting the manger with the cross. If you don't get the gospel, you don't really get Christmas, right? And so I think it's appropriate for us as we dive into Mark 14 to start uh, looking at the last days and the last hours before Jesus went to the cross here uh, in Mark 14. The story is really going to start to turn dark, and we're going to see the scandal. We're going to see the injustice of it. We're going to see uh, Jesus is left all alone as he carries out uh, the mission of the Messiah. But as he does that, I think we're going to get a deeper appreciation for the grace that we don't deserve. And um, sometimes we sang that over and over, but we want to give him all the praise. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded that he is worthy of it. So um, before we jump into the text, here's the big idea of the, uh, the text that we're going to see this morning. Uh, note this unworthy sinners can be saved and worship the one who is worthy. So we're going to see that uh, this morning, and, and I want to show it to you. We've got a lot of texts that we're going to read, uh, but we're going to start in verse 1. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1, it says, Now it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was, uh, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. 
She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has, been, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So um, kind of indebted to uh, James Edwards, one of the commentators who has pointed out this story sandwich. We've talked about this before, um, where um, Mark, the way Mark writes the story, he'll, he'll, he'll start a story and then kind of interrupt it and then pick it back up later, and he forms this story sandwich. I think we see one of those right here in the first 11 verses. We, 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 we see uh, this, this plot to kill Jesus and, and then Judas's betrayal of Jesus, and sandwiched in between is this story about a woman who anoints Jesus. Do you see that? And that leads us to this first gospel truth that we get this morning. Uh, note this. He is worthy. And our worship is never a waste. I hope you see that. So the first two verses here, uh, he's, he's reminding us uh, that uh, it's just a couple of days before Passover and these religious leaders are trying to uh, arrest him uh, by stealth. Jerusalem's kind of crazy town right now and they really want to kill Jesus, but they fear the people. But then Mark cuts to another scene in verse 3 and, and he moves outside of the city in in a city called Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And he said this happened in the house of Simon the leper. Now, uh, it maybe uh, it, it's an assumed that, that Mark's readers might have known who that was. Uh, and he doesn't really uh, tell us what happened to Simon, but we're kind of assuming that he doesn't have leprosy anymore. So it's very possible that Jesus had actually healed this man, and, and now he's in his house outside of the city of Jerusalem, but the focus is on this woman. But notice, if you will, that, that Mark actually doesn't tell us the woman's name. Now, now, this story is recorded in some of the other Gospels, and, and John actually tells us that this woman, uh, her name was Mary, and you know her because she was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But, but Mark doesn't highlight her name. He's highlighting this gift that she brought in. She brings in this, this, this alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. So, so the alabaster flask, uh, that might have been imported from, from Egypt, and so that couldn't have been cheap. And, and inside of it was this ointment, this, this uh, oil of, of nard, which was uh, really expensive, fragrant oil, especially when it's, it's pure and undiluted. And this oil probably came from uh, northern India. And this is proof that Jesus is into essential oils, for those of you who are into that kind of thing. And, and uh, really the point is, it's really expensive, okay? To the point where the, the disciples are, some of the people that are standing by, they're looking at this thing and they're starting to estimate in their head like, man, this thing, we could sell this on eBay and be a ton of money, right? It could be 300 denarii. You remember, uh, one denarius was a day's wages. You start doing the math in your head. 
You're like 300, that's almost a year's wages. So, so one commentator suggests that maybe this was a family heirloom because we're like, how in the world did this woman get a hold of this? And maybe there was some sentimental value here. But the, the, the point is, this is incredibly valuable. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe you've been in that position where you needed to clean things out in your house. Because anybody ever moved? Anybody ever moved and you had to like start throwing things away? You know what I'm talking about? You get to that point where it's like, it's got to go. We got to start purging everything. I was doing this in my office uh, earlier uh, when I realized I have just way too much stuff. And, and you get to the point where you just chuck it. Just get rid of it. Don't need it. This is not one of those things that you throw away. Okay? I mean, we could make some serious money off of this thing. But, but look what she does. Verse 3. She broke the flask. Can't use it anymore. And it says she poured it over his head. Now, um, those of you who do essential oils, you know this is not how essential oils are supposed to work, right? You really only need a little uh, drop. Uh, so those of you who think this is like, it, it's not a thing, it's a thing, okay? I used to make fun of it. I didn't think it was real until my wife started giving me some of that lavender and because uh, it's supposed to make you really sleepy. And, and I kind of hate it because it knocks me out. And so she'll sneak up behind me and just kind of like put a little bit on the back of my neck and instantly I'm like, oh, man, I'm going down. Uh, so so, so the, the, the point in this, what, what you, you don't need a lot. You just need a little bit, just a few drops, right? But she pours it all on. She just dumps it all. And so, of course, some of them are sitting there like, what What are you doing? Why is this wasted like that? Like, you could have just used the little, you dumped the whole thing on. And, and, and they try to make their, their frustration sound honorable, like, man, well, I mean, we, that could have made a lot of money. We could have given that to the, to the poor or something. But, but, but they, they scolded her. You wasted it all. On Jesus. You see, instead of being moved by her obvious love for Christ and this act of sacrifice and and extravagant worship, they're essentially saying, Jesus is not worth that. Because true worship will never make sense to those who don't know the true worth of Christ. So maybe there ought to be more people in our lives who are kind of caught off guard and disgusted by our our radical love for Jesus, right? Maybe we should probably be hearing objections to our choices and lifestyle. Like why... Why do you go to church every weekend? I mean, every weekend? Like, why are, why are you so sold out there? And, and why do you give so much money? And, 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 and why don't you just, you know, skip that whole small group thing and have, have some more fun, have another, you know, free night during the week and do something with your family? Or, or, or why aren't you doing the same things we, we used to do on the weekends? I mean, we used to have a ton of fun. Why aren't you doing that anymore? And, 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 and why are you going on a missions trip 
I mean, you could be going on vacation and, you know, go somewhere really cool and, and spend some time on you. Or, or, or why are you always talking about Jesus and the Bible? See, see, most people don't care if Jesus is just kind of a thing that you have going on in your life. Everybody's got a thing. Everybody's got a few things that they have going on, like some sort of hobby or, or, or some social activity or an extracurricular activity. So they're cool with that if Jesus is that for you. Like you want a little bit of Jesus for some spiritual or intellectual stimulation. We get that. But, but, but shouldn't we be living in such a way that people who don't know and love Christ find it absurd that we are so sold out to him? Like, why is he so important to you? Shouldn't shouldn't we have people saying that? What does it say about our actual view of Christ if we hardly ever shock anyone with our devotion to him? So why, why, why did she do this? We, we don't really know um, her level of understanding, whether she really got it, but Jesus does tell us what she did. Verse 6, he says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. He sees the, the beauty in her act of worship because she sees him as extremely valuable. As he said, you, you, you always have the poor. You can always do good to them, but you don't always have me. It's not saying don't, don't, Help the poor. You, like, you should do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. You should do that. But first, the ultimate priority is love for Christ. And he says, verse 8, I love this. Look at it, verse 8. She has done what she could. Reminds us of the, the woman with her offering, right? At the end of chapter 12. Now, obviously, this, this, this gift is a little bit more expensive than the two small copper coins that that woman put in. But, but, but it's the act of complete devotion that Jesus is commending here. And we don't know whether she completely understood it or not, but it points to the gospel. Because Jesus says she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. That, that word there is to, to, to embalm or to prep a corpse not something you normally do to somebody who's still alive. But, but the point is that the good news of the gospel centers on the death of Jesus. And wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Think about this. Mark doesn't even tell us her name. But her act of worship is memorialized forever. Not so that we would exalt her and think she's so great, but so that we would see just how valuable her Savior is. She gave him everything she could. And it shows us that our worship is never a waste because he is so worthy of it. Is Jesus your treasure? Do you treasure him? See, see when, you, when you treasure Christ, you can look down at what you have and in comparison, you're like, Jesus is better. And so I'm not worried about what I'm going to lose. If I, don't, I don't have to rummage through my stuff and make sure that I'm holding on to it. I'm looking for what I can give him. Even if, no, 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 especially if it's something valuable. 
Like, Jesus, I want you to have my time. You take my calendar, it's yours. Take my bank account and my assets. I don't want to hold on to these. This is yours. I want to use it in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you and invest in your kingdom. God, take, take, take my, my work, my career. I want to do this in a way that brings you glory and lifts your name high. And I take, take, take my future. It's in your hands. I'm going to trust you with it. Take my, take my family. Take the relationships that I have, the, the things that are most valuable. Take it, Lord. I want, I want you to have it. What, what can I give him? I, I want to give him. Even when others would shake their heads and say, what a waste. Our worship is never a waste because he is worthy. But you contrast that with what we see in verse 10. Mark goes right back to the end of the sandwich here. Verse 10, Judas, who is one of the 12, meaning um, you'd least expect this. He went to the chief priests. Notice he went to them. They didn't come to him. He went to them to betray him, literally to hand him over. And Mark has been really clear that these religious leaders have wanted to kill Jesus for a while. And so Judas had to know what that meant. And why? Verse 11 tells us that they promised to give him money. So he's going to profit from Jesus' death. This contrast could not be more clear, right? Here's this woman who gives what she could to Jesus, and Judas looking to get what he can to give him up to his enemies. But the story goes on. Let's keep reading verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is the one, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, 
and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So here's another story sandwich that we have, okay? In the middle is the Lord's Supper where Jesus is giving his his body and his blood in between the betrayal and the denial of his Disciples. The disciples abandon him. I think that leads us to our second gospel truth. Note this. He gives his life to save the unworthy. You see that? Verse 12 uh, tells us that this is the first day of unleavened bread. So now it's Thursday. This is the day before uh, Jesus is going to go to the cross, and they need a, they need a place, they need a room to uh, prep to eat the Passover. And, and when you eat the Passover, you got to eat it in the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus sends a couple of guys in to, to go and find, and, and he tells them, you're going to see this man with a jar of water. He tells them uh, where to go and what they'll find when they get there. And guess what? When they go in, verse 16 says, they found it just as he told them, meaning this was either prearranged or it's kind of miraculous that Jesus is able to prophesy and predict what they would find when they get there. The point is this, Jesus is absolutely in control as he approaches his death. Look at verse 18. This is significant. Verse 18, as they were reclining at table and eating. So um, if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, how, how many of you have ever been to a Passover Seder? We're going to do another Passover Seder in just a couple months in the spring. Uh, we're going to do it again. We did it a couple years ago. It's a lot of fun. And uh, we, we want to show you how this works. If you've been at a Passover Seder, uh, the meal, you, you, you know this is how you're supposed to sit. You sit uh, reclining which is weird because we normally think like, that's, a, that's a special meal. You think kind of formal. We need, to, we need to sit up straight. But, but when you eat the Passover, you're supposed to recline. And the reason you do that is because that's not how they ate the first Passover. Remember the first Passover, uh, they ate that when they were slaves in Egypt. Remember that? And I've got this for you on the screen, Exodus chapter 12. Here's what God told them when they were eating the Passover lamb. He says, here's how you do it. In this manner, you shall eat it. With with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. God's giving them a visual clue, okay? Get your shoes on, get your coat on, grab your wallet, grab your keys, eat quick. You're getting out of here. We're, we're, we're taking you out of slavery. And so now the tradition has kind of changed. When, when they eat the Passover Seder, they're, they're reclining because it reminds them that they can rest after being delivered from slavery. And they spend the night remembering and telling the story of what God did to bring them out of Egypt. So just what an awesome picture this is. Here is is Jesus reclining at table, recounting the exodus, knowing what he's about to go do 
to bring us out of slavery to sin and to give us rest. He is our rest. What an awesome picture. But it takes a turn, verse 18. Like out of nowhere, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So that stops the festivities, right? And, 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 and they're all like, like this, he doesn't tell us who, but they're all wondering. It's just obvious that this shouldn't be happening, right? Especially from his inner circle of trusted friends. And so they, it's, the text says they become sorrowful and they all start asking, is, is it I? Are, are, you talking, are you talking about me? I think Jesus actually intends for them to have a little introspection and to do some soul searching here. And he says it is one of the 12. Which, which honestly, how is, how is that possible? That ought to scare us a little bit that somebody that is so close to Jesus could do that. And I know that we're uh, probably so familiar with this story that we, you know, we, we just kind of distance ourselves from Judas because, he, I mean, he's the bad guy. He's an obvious bad guy. But I think we need to be asking the same question the disciples are asking. Is it I? Do, do I have a heart that would betray Jesus like that? And it's only once we realize that our hearts have the same bent towards sin that we'll really start to appreciate the grace that we're going to see here. Now, I know that, that Judas's failure is outright and it's intentional, but in just a few short hours, he's not going to be the only one. We're going to see this in a minute, but, but all of the disciples are actually going to betray him by abandoning him and denying him. But he tells us something significant in verse 21. He, he actually affirms both divine sovereignty and human choice right here. Verse 21, he says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This isn't taking God by surprise. This was prophesied. And Jesus is identifying with the prophetic words of Psalm 41 when, when the psalmist said there, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus knew this was God's will, that he would be betrayed and that he would go to the cross. In fact, in Isaiah 53.10, we're told that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is God's will. And God can use even evil to accomplish his good purposes. But that doesn't excuse uh, Judas's sinful choice. He's still held responsible. And so Jesus says, woe to that man. It had been better for him if he had not been born. And it's easy for us to just despise Judas. I mean, we hate Judas. He's, he's an obvious bad guy. And so when, when, when Matthew tells us later that, that um, Judas went out and hung himself, uh, we kind of feel like he got what he deserved, right? But if we realize that all of the sin in our lives, every time we sin, it's an act of betrayal and rebellion against Christ, then it means we deserve the same thing. And none of us are worthy of grace. If only Judas knew what awaits those who repent, though, right? And it's all because of what Jesus did next. 
verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And that wouldn't have been unusual in the Passover, but what is is what he said next. This stood out. This is my body. And now that does not mean, as some people teach, uh, that the bread there literally became and Uh, Whenever we take communion, the bread becomes the body of Christ. It's not that. The bread represents his body as the sacrifice for sin once for all. And you just picture Jesus distributing the bread. He's giving himself to his disciples. And so we enjoy the presence of God with the Spirit of God living inside of us. And whenever we take communion like we're going to do next week, it's a reminder for us of the gospel, and it feeds us spiritually. And then it says he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he, uh, they all drank of it. For those of you who have been to a Passover Seder know that uh, the meal itself is kind of organized around four uh, different cups, four different times throughout the meal that that you drink of the cup. And uh, these four cups are kind of centered around Exodus chapter 6. And and the first is the cup of sanctification, Exodus 6. Sanctification, he says, I will bring you out. The second cup is the cup of praise for deliverance where God says, I will deliver you from slavery. The third cup is, is the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the fourth cup is the cup of acceptance. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And so it's actually that third cup, the cup of redemption that Jesus is lifting here, and they're all drinking of, and he says, verse 24, this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out, for who? For many. That, that reminds us of the, the key verse in the book of Mark. You know this, right? I've got it for you on the screen just in case you need to cheat. Mark chapter 10, here's what he said, verse 45. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The, the way that the many are ransomed and redeemed out of slavery to sin and death is through the blood of Jesus. That's what he's telling us. There's no more need to, to, to keep killing animals. Our debt has been paid, and we can stand righteous before God. For Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He is the sacrifice, and none of us deserve that. But that's why he came, right? Because he gives his life to save the unworthy. Jesus was holding up that third cup to help us understand. We need his blood to save us. And then he came to that fourth cup. And Jesus actually doesn't uh, drink it. But he waits. Verse 25. He says, I'm not going to drink this until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. See, he's looking ahead to that final day when all things have been set right and we're going to be celebrating with him. Can't wait for that day when we rejoice with Christ in heaven. But before that day comes, he's going to have to drink the cup of the wrath of God. 
And just a few hours later, in verse 36, he's going to pray, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then notice, I know our scripture is often broken up into sections and paragraphs, but look at verse 26. It says, um, and when they had sung a hymn, that's typically how you end a Passover Seder. When you get to the end of the meal, you, you sing, normally you sing one of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, and we don't know what it was that they sang, but I think this is Mark's way of keeping the next section connected to the Lord's Supper and finishing the sandwich. What he's doing is reminding us that Jesus is doing this for men and women who are not worthy. Because he says, verse 27, you will all fall away. It's not just Judas. All of the disciples fail. The word there is scandalizo. It's, it's where we get our word scandalize. It's, it, it's this, it means to stumble and fall. It's the same word that was used of the seeds in the parable of the seeds and the soil back in Mark chapter 4. You remember some of the seed had been scattered around. This is the word that was used of the seed that fell on the rocky soil that had no root. Here's what he said, chapter 4, verse 17. Here's what happened to that seed. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And Jesus right here is predicting all of their failure. Now, they may not have been plotting like Judas was, but this is a reminder to us that none of us are capable in and of ourselves to not sin. And it's only, only an accurate suspicion of our own ability to stand and to do what's right in the heat of the moment that will keep us humble and dependent on him. I mean, you see the, the, the foolishness of self-reliance and determination. Peter, Peter's like, no way, man. Verse 29, he says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Notice he just threw everybody else under the bus. Like, yeah, they may fall away, but I'm not like them. I'm, I'm not going to, there's no way that I'm going to fail. And so Jesus has to say to him, actually, uh, it's going to happen three times. You're going to deny me. Three times. And Mark's the only one that tells us that the rooster actually crowed twice. So it's not just going to be like this, this one time, like you accidentally slipped up, like, whoops, I didn't mean to, I'm sorry, I, 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 I got caught off guard. In fact, Mark tells us that the, the rooster crowed after his first denial. You would think that that might be a reminder that might bring him under some conviction, like, oh, man, I forgot. Like, I, I'm so sorry. I don't want to do it again. I'm going to do it. But he doesn't. He just keeps going. And he denies him a second time and a third time. He's going to fail miserably and sin boldly. But, but, but here is Peter, so sure of himself beforehand that he essentially calls Jesus a liar. He says, that's not going to happen. Even if I have to die, I will not deny you. And the text says that they all said the same thing. All of them said that. Because we all have this foolish tendency to overestimate our own ability. How many times have you made a, a resolution 
This is it right here. I'm walking an aisle. I'm praying a prayer. I'm, I'm throwing my stick in the fire. I'm putting a stake in the ground. Like, I'm going to do what's right. Like, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean up my act. Things are going to change. I'm never doing this again from here on out, only to fail again and again. You been there? We can't trust in our own power and resolve, no matter how sincere our determination is. If we trust in ourselves, we fail. So we've got to learn to trust in the Lord. Maybe some of you have been wanting to change. you got that thing. You're like, I want, I want this to be different in my life. Maybe you need to pray, Lord, based on what you said in your word and based on my own experience, I'm a little suspicious of my own heart. I need you. Love what he does. Verse 27, he says, for, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered in just a few hours. They're all going to abandon him. They're all going to leave. They're just going to fulfill this prophecy from Zechariah 13. They're all going to fail. But look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. Do you see this? But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Man, there is so much hope here. That Christ is going to rise in victory. And then he's going to go meet his disciples after their failure in Galilee to show them grace again and to recommission them. Isn't that awesome? That even when you fail, and you might fail miserably and time and again, he still forgives, and he still uses us. I remember when I was younger, and I had sin in my life that I was confessing and wanting to get it right and feeling so defeated. And I had confessed some things to my pastor, and and and. and I remember he took me to Psalm 51. There's that great prayer of repentance, right? God, forgive me. Create in me a clean heart. You got to wash me. You got to, I'm a mess. But then he said, look at verse 13. After all that prayer of confession, the psalmist says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. It's because of my failure because I'm, I've been forgiven, that I have the opportunity to teach others. That God would use us in our weakness. That's why we love Christ. And that's why we live sent. Do you know that? Hey, listen, to live sent doesn't mean that you have to go somewhere. You have to go on a missions trip. You have to get out of here. You live sent right here right now with the opportunity to tell other people that unworthy sinners can be saved and worship the one who is worthy. Father, we just love your mercy and your grace. 
Thank you that you would uh, pay for our sin. We confess that we could not. We confess that we all have this tendency in our hearts still. It doesn't even make sense that we still think we can handle it on our own. We try to live in our own power and our own resolve to change. God, we're just confessing that, that we're going we're gonna to learn to suspect our own hearts and our own motives. We're going to stop believing that we can do it in and of ourselves. And God, we just confess that we need you. Thank you so much that you would forgive us no matter what we've done. That you still love us. We don't have to earn that. There's nothing we could do that would change it. And you want to use us even after our failures in our weakness. And so we, we boast in our weaknesses. For it's in our weakness that your power is made perfect. So because of that, you get the glory. And that's our story. That's what we want to tell the world. We thank you that you love us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray.